Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Will you pray with me? Patient God, help us to rest into your everlasting kindness as we transfigure moment by moment. Amen. And please be seated. This morning marks the end of the season after the Epiphany. And before transitioning to the season of Lent on Wednesday, today marks a church feast called Transfiguration Sunday. As you heard in this morning's service description, this special feast commemorates the miraculous change in Jesus' appearance when he unveiled his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. As the fulfillment of Epiphany's longing, the transfiguration reveals not only the glory of Jesus' way of life in the world, but it also casts vision for all that we can become in the midst of what we are. The transfiguration reveals not only the glory of Jesus' way of life in the world, but it also casts vision for all that we can become in the midst of what we are. I'm going to come back to this idea in just a moment, but first I want to connect this morning's sermon to a few other sermons that you've heard over the past several months. On Christ the King Sunday, Pastor Ben preached a sermon titled, Reimagining a Community of Peace, Empire. And he talked about how the ways of empire are an obstacle to Jesus' community of peace in this world. Then on the first Sunday after the Epiphany, I preached a sermon titled, Reimagining a Community of Peace, White Supremacy. And I talked about how white supremacy and its connection to white Christianity hinders Jesus' community of peace in the world. With these sermons in mind, today's sermon will follow suit. On this Feast of Transfiguration, I'm preaching a sermon titled, Reimagining a Community of Peace, Perfection. Oh, perfection. And I'm going to talk about how perfectionism is an obstacle to Jesus' community of peace. And finally, several weeks from now, there will be one more sermon in this series on Trinity Sunday, where we think about this interdependent relational triune God into whom each of us is invited. And the sermon is titled, Reimagining a Community of Peace, Individualism, which is often a barrier between us and the kind of peace that Jesus wants to mediate in this world. But before Trinity Sunday, it's Transfiguration Sunday. And as I've already read, I want to read again. The transfiguration reveals not only the glory of Jesus' way of life in the world, but it also casts vision for all that we can become in the midst of what we are. It casts vision for all that we can become in the midst of what we are. Now, I'm not sure what this language makes you think or feel. Perhaps you're super, like just super gentle with yourself when it comes to areas of character or habits or skills that that are in need of growth and development. Like, you're not perfect. Perhaps you would even say about yourself that you've far to go and much to learn, and yet you're not mad at yourself. 
You're not disappointed in yourself. You're not hard on yourself. Instead, you are wonderfully and gently patient with yourself. Now, I'm not going to do this, but I am kind of curious. I wonder if I were to ask, who here would describe themselves as wonderfully patient with themselves? I wonder how many people would raise their hands. I'd be hopeful that almost everyone in this room would raise their hands, but my guess is that very few people in the room would raise their hands. And I'm certain we could go spend a whole bunch of time delving into why this is the case, and we could talk about evolutionary psychology and personality and temperament and childhood experiences, and and perhaps for some, perhaps even we could say in this group, for many, at the very top, a primary reason for which we lack gentle patience toward ourselves may be the church. Church. I mean, church often delineates right and wrong, good and bad. Church often casts a story about how Adam and Eve weren't obedient enough. And because they weren't obedient enough, they were cursed and sent outside of Eden. Church tells people that due to Adam and Eve, we're all depraved from birth. And so church says, trust in Jesus. And church says, be like Jesus. And of course, Jesus was a pretty great guy, right? And so we've all got a long, very long way to go. And on top of how great he already is, then he has to go up onto a mountain and transfigure, dazzling in splendor, while God says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Oh my goodness, we've got a long way to go if Jesus' life sets the bar for what our lives are supposed to be like right now in this day. In college, in pursuing a biblical studies degree, I had to read a book titled Birthright. I can remember this book so clearly. Birthright told me that if I'm truly trusting in Jesus, then it's not only possible, but, but it should be that I live a perfect life because of my birthright in Christ. And this book told me that when I didn't live perfectly, it's because I'm not trusting in Jesus enough. And I don't know about you, but that is a pretty overwhelming feeling for an imperfect and far-to-go and much-to-learn 20-year-old in the world. You know what I mean? And this makes me want to ask, is this what God expects from our lives? Like, does God expect perfection? And when we're not perfect, does God feel as bad about us as we feel about ourselves? Is that what's happening? Is perfection the point of living? Is perfection the divine's expectation for our lives now, always now? Well, if that's the case, then we'd have a whole bunch of people feeling guilty about their imperfect lives. And if that's the case, then we'd have a whole bunch of people trying, trying so hard to be perfect, only to find that they fall again and again and again. And unfortunately, this is how many Christians understand life in this world. And I think a primary reason for this is because the Western church has misread and misunderstood the Bible's inciting incident. As an example of how important discerning a story's inciting incident is, I want us to consider for a moment Peter Pan. When was the last time you read or watched Peter Pan? The inciting incident in Peter Pan is that Wendy, Jonathan, and Michael struggle with growing up. They think that they can remain kids forever, and they kind of want to. 
And so they fly off to Neverland where pirates and children are chased by time. Through plot filled with hilarity, play, romantic interest, and sword fighting, Wendy, Jonathan, and Michael make the difficult decision to return home in order to surrender to the very difficult but wonderfully normal task of growing up. For certainly, they've come to understand that surrendering to time is a better choice than running from time and becoming perpetually ludicrous pirates or infantile children. This interpretation of the inciting incident makes continual sense of the plot throughout the story, which results in a comedy, that is to say, good news. Wendy, Jonathan, and Michael have learned something important. It's better to surrender to time than it is to run away from time, as if time is a clock inside of an alligator chasing you everywhere that you go. It is better to surrender to time. Every person must grow up. Now, for a moment, consider a different interpretation of the inciting incident. Like, like what if we thought that, that the whole inciting incident was, was about Wendy's desire to win Pan's heart? And so, so, joined by her devoted brothers, they follow Panda Neverland, where they come to realize that Captain Hook, Lost Children, and every other swimming, dancing, and flying character are also in love with Pan. Over time, Wendy realizes that she'll never completely win Pan's heart, and so she, along with her brothers, return home to live out their lives. Now, if that was the inciting incident, then the story is a tragedy. It's bad news. The point being something like pursuing love even to a far-off world promises a world of disappointment and sorrow. That's how the story would unfold. It's what the story would mean. And it's all because of how we understand the inciting incident. Now, this latter interpretation is obviously wrong. Yes, there's a romantic interest between Wendy and Pan, and yet such a reading begins to make less sense as the story unfolds. Uh, Hook is not in love with Pan. He wants to kill him. The Lost Boys clearly love Pan, but not in a romantic kind of way. Uh, they love Pan kind of like uh, Jonathan and Michael love Wendy. And furthermore, although Wendy, Jonathan, and Michael are somewhat melancholy about returning home, they're resolute that they need to go home and that it's both good and right to slowly grow up into adulthood. If these interpretive clues are thoughtfully noticed, then an incorrect inciting incident must, it absolutely must be re-examined. Otherwise, a story's plot will be regularly perplexing and ultimately fail to make sense of the story as a whole. Now, thanks for going with me on that Peter Pan odyssey. I think it's, I think it's so important because many of us have misinterpreted the Bible's inciting incident, which has resulted in a misunderstanding of the Bible's plot, chaos, and overall meaning. More so, this misreading has placed many of us in a binary world in which the divine expectation is perfection or else. Perfection or else. Let me explain. For many Western Christians, the Bible's inciting incident occurs in Genesis chapter 3, which we heard this morning, when Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This entire ordeal is often called or referred to as original sin. Now, I've talked about this before, so I'm not going to go into depth like I have in the past. But put simply, original sin is perceived to occur in Genesis chapter 3 which tells the story of Adam and Eve disobeying God by eating fruit from this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, God curses Adam and Eve and sends them outside the garden, east, we're told, east of Eden. 
based on this part of the biblical narrative, the theory of original sin states that in that moment, like right when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, in that moment, the world was abruptly and catastrophically altered and humans became inherently depraved from their core at birth, maybe even at conception. And although many of us haven't had the opportunity to think critically about this theory of original sin, it has a ton of complications. So just a few examples. First, the words original sin are not in the Bible. I think that's important for us to realize. The term original sin is not in the Bible. In fact, the term isn't even coined until Augustine in the late 4th, early 5th century. Isn't that interesting? And then consider this, Judaism has no concept of original sin. And, and I would say that they're the gatekeepers of the Hebrew scriptures. Judaism has no concept for original sin. In fact, following Genesis 3, if you were to read page by page by page all the way to the end of the Hebrew scriptures, you would see that Adam and Eve are rarely mentioned. They're only in a genealogy, and it has nothing to do with the fall or their curse. Much of Western Christianity is grounded in a theory that's based on Adam and Eve, who outside of Genesis 3 receive almost no attention no attention in the Bible, absolutely no attention, uh, even though, according to the theory of original sin, they physiologically changed the universe and depraved the souls of every human being. And besides being absent from the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus does not mention original sin. That's important. Nor do the remaining New Testament books in the Bible. I could go on and on and on, but I'll just highlight one more complication that arises when somebody reads the Bible through the lens of original sin, and it's this. Reading the Bible's inciting incident through the lens of original sin means that the life of Adam is way more powerful than the life of Jesus. Like, if you pause to think critically about it. Because according to the theory of original sin, in Adam, the world was immediately and catastrophically altered. Immediately. And all of humankind all of humankind became depraved. However, in Jesus, it's only people who believe who are saved. And the, the world, the earth, the creation, it continues on unchanged. You see, the theory of original sin is bad Bible reading. It makes the story of the Bible into a tragedy. It says that Jesus is less effectual than Adam. And it sets before us the notion of divine perfection. Get it right, Think right, live right, be right, or else. That's where original sin takes us. Now, here's the good news. Prior to the notion of original sin was the notion that humans are tasked with growing up from infancy into adulthood. About this process of growth, late second century church father Irenaeus writes these words. For as it certainly is in the power of a mother to give strong food to her infant as the child is not yet able to receive more substantial nourishment, so also it was possible for God himself to have made man perfect from the first. But man could not receive this, being as yet an infant. According to Irenaeus, because it is physiologically impossible for humans to immediately grow up, because we can't do that, we must surrender to a lifelong process of maturation. And it's this very process that God invited Adam and Eve into from the beginning. However, as Genesis 3 explains, they attempt perfect knowledge by what I call uh, wisdom grasping. 
because they want to eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. They want to have it all now, right now. Here's another pre-Augustine quote that shows what the more ancient church, second century apologists, were thinking about Genesis chapter three. Theophilus of Antioch, approximately 169 CE, wrote these words. For there was nothing else in the fruit than only knowledge. But knowledge is good when one uses it discreetly. But Adam, being yet an infant in age, was on this account as yet unable to receive knowledge worthily. For now also, when a child is born, it is not at once able to eat bread, but it's nourished first with milk, and then with the increments of years advances to solid food. Besides, it is unseemly that children in infancy be wise beyond their years. For as in stature one increases in an orderly progress, so also in wisdom. Based on this perspective, which very much aligns with Eastern Orthodoxy's interpretation of Genesis 1 to 3, the invitation to every person in the Genesis account is to grow up into the wisdom and knowledge of God. That's the invitation. And yet Adam and Eve attempted to gain perfect knowledge when they attempted to do that, without going on the very human journey of life, they came to know shame, guilt, and the experience of distance from the divine, who invites us all over time to grow up into the wholeness and goodness of God. And all of this brings me to life east of Eden. Adam and Eve were unable to patiently grow and flourish in Eden. They were tempted, always tempted by getting it all perfectly right now, always now. And so they're set down outside of paradise. They're surrounded by a life filled with thorns and thistles and toil. And so I suppose we could say, yes, sure, it is a curse. To live out life in this world is a curse. But isn't it true that even curses can have gifts? I mean, where else are we going to grow? Where else are you going to grow? Where else are we going to learn? Where else are we going to become full and whole human beings if not here? Where else is that supposed to happen? Well, according to the biblical account, we cannot do it in Eden. Perfection only makes us feel shame and guilt for our imperfection. And so Pearl Church, here we are. We are set down in this textured, glorious, and imperfect world with imperfect humans in which the perfect, the divine, invites humankind to grow up over millennia, stage by developmental stage by developmental stage. Here we are set down in this textured, glorious, and imperfect world with imperfect humans in which the perfect, the divine, invites each of us personally over lifetime to grow stage by developmental stage by developmental stage. Please hear this. There is no other way to wholly and fully grow. You cannot read a book. You cannot see a therapist. You cannot set and accomplish a goal. You cannot even pray and ask Jesus into your heart and suddenly become all that we intend and hope for our lives. This is not how humans develop. It's not how humans grow. In fact, I'd suggest that it's this kind of thinking that causes us to hide in trees and cover ourselves with leaves because as Jesus said, no one is perfect, only God. And this brings me to divine kindness, about kindness. 
Adam and Eve did not cataclysmically alter humankind in the creation. I hope you can hear that. Rather, Adam and Eve are simply an example of humankind's wisdom grasping to become like God without living life. And this you see is good news. You are not inherently depraved. You are wonderfully glorious and full of potential. And your friends, your family, your neighbors, even your enemies, they are not inherently depraved. They also are wonderfully glorious and full of potential. And just to tease out how, how powerful these ideas and these stories are, if you grew up in a church where original sin was held to and the thought that children are depraved, perhaps you have heard somebody say like when they're around a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a four-year-old who's starting to kind of test boundaries, uh, people who grew up in the theory of original sin will sometimes say like, ooh, there's that fallenness. There's that depravity at work. And then the parents are all uptight. I mean, what do you do? How do you deal with depra utter depravity, right? And, and so then we start responding to our children out of fear and guilt and worry. We've got to beat it out of them. That is a very evangelical idea. That is tragic. What if a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old is just developing beginning to learn the difference between them and the world? And what if every moment of our lives is like that? Rather than feeling bad about ourselves and feeling like we're ultimately depraved, what if we are just becoming more human and developing as humans develop step by step? We humans do have a proclivity to be perfect now, always now, but like Adam and Eve, this merely leads to shame and guilt because we are not perfect. And so Pearl Church, let us be patient with ourselves and with each other. Wholeness and goodness take a lifetime to grow up into. And when you blow it, that is not proof that you are bad. It's not proof that you are depraved. It's not proof that you are hopeful. It's proof that you are human. And, and the divine is holding your hand and gently leading you step by step into becoming more fully and wonderfully human. Yes, you've blown it. Yes, you've made mistakes. Yes, there are probably a ton of things that you'd like to undo or redo. And yet every moment, every mistake, every good and bad experience, and every experience in between the extremities of good and bad are a part of the hero's journey in which you leave the womb, wander, struggle, fight, break, heal, and through it all, and truly because of it all, you are exactly what you are today. And what you are is the culmination of a lot of moments and all of it is gift. Imperfect, of course. Complete, no, not really. Simply human, always human on the divine journey of growing up by being born again and again and again and again. Which brings me to the way of Jesus. The Bible's stories and poems and prayers and prophetic messages spanning Genesis to Jesus' crucifixion, those aren't just wasted pages, right? Like, like Adam did this and now we're just waiting for Jesus so we can get to that. So we just skip all this stuff. No, the Bible tells us something incredible, which is that it takes time to grow up. Humankind starts out very barbaric. You go back into the early scriptures and you move forward and suddenly we're moving to love and to grace and to inclusion. There's a trajectory that we see in humankind as we read the scriptures. And we stand on the shoulders of all of the generations before us. 
The Bible stories, poems, prayers, and prophetic messages bear witness to humankind's slow march toward mature life in God, which culminates in love. With this in mind, Jesus' life then becomes a revealing of what mature life in God, perfect love, looks like. And it's into this life that Jesus invites, come, come follow after me. And finally, as opposed to wondering why Jesus' death and resurrection didn't immediately reverse the effects of original sin, we can look at Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the anti-Adam narrative that demonstrates a loving way of being in the world that over time, not right away, but over time results not in our own wholeness, but in this whole world's wholeness, which is what we see at the end of our story from Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of water, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and the lamb was in the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the fruit of the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit producing in every single month its fruit. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. We need that, don't we? Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Maybe we could say because love is at the center. Love has become the center of us all. And they will see his face. They will see love. And they will see his name on their foreheads. Love will be on their foreheads. And there will be more night, no more darkness. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever because love always reigns. From garden to city of light, we say yes to following Jesus. From garden to city of light, we say yes to a lifetime of growth. From garden to city of light, we say yes to a way of being that is biblical and cyclical. Life, death, and resurrection. Always resurrection. And trusting in Jesus' revelation of news that's truly good, divinity among us, within us, full of grace and mercy, leading us more deeply into love, we're invited to live out our lives in this spectacular world called life. How? With patience and gentleness. No one is perfect. Change and growth take time. Mistakes and problems are part of the process. And perfection is not the goal. It's ever-increasing goodness. And we are all invited to live out our lives in this spectacular world called life with expectant hope. We can change and grow. We too can be transfigured. But of course, not all at once. May it be so, and let us pray. Patient God, help us to rest into your everlasting kindness as we transfigure, as all humans do, moment by moment. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.